Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Hey, shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Image Bears Radio. I am your host, Pastor Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from Out of Ashes Ministries in southwest Louisiana. I hope you are doing incredibly well. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Uh, if you're listening for the first time and uh, it's your first time being with us on Hebrew Nation Online Live, then uh, let me just say shalom and I uh, hope you're having a great week. And thanks so much for stopping by. Um, stick around because we have a great conversation ahead, and I hope it'll be thought-provoking and uh, something that you can chew on. Uh, for the next few days. And uh, if you're a someone who catches us regularly, one of the many times that we're on uh, during the week, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of you because you are an incredible community and we are so grateful to have you. Uh, so I hope everyone is doing uh, incredibly well. We just came through the uh, awesome celebration of Purim. And uh, so I hope that uh, whether or not you celebrate Purim with a congregation or, you know, celebrate it in any uh, particular fashion, uh, at least you were in the book of Esther for some time, reading some commentaries, doing some praying through and studying through the book of Esther. And uh, just thinking about it in context of where we are today, I think the uh, Megalot Esther has so much to speak to us still today. Uh, and so we enjoyed a wonderful evening together at OAM. Uh, we do uh, do costumes each year. Not a big deal. Some people dress up. Some people don't. It's all good. Whoever wants to can. Not a big deal. But this year our theme was kind of a 70s theme. And so it was a lot of fun. And uh, read through the scroll together. We had a lot of teenagers that read. Now, that's always really super special. And uh, then had some great food and some good music. And uh, just laughed and cut up and fellowship afterwards. And it was really, really fun. And uh, remembering the, 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 the gravity, though, and the heaviness of what Purim is all about, uh, we spent some time in prayer for uh, the land of Israel, uh, for the Jewish people, uh, especially those in the diaspora and uh, those uh, in facing you know, violence and danger in the land. Uh, for Ukrainian Jews especially, and uh, so uh, wonderful time, and I hope that you had a great time as well. Uh, we are quickly going to be approaching Passover, and I know it seems like, well, we've got a month, we've got three weeks, whatever, but listen, you and I both know if you've celebrated Passover, uh, any at all, that you think, well, i got a few weeks, and then it'll be here tomorrow, so don't... Um, don't drag your feet on Passover. Uh, we'll be talking about Pesach in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and, of course, on Shabbat morning uh, as we do our services. Before we get into today's episode, let me just encourage you, as I do try to do every week, uh, if you don't know, we live stream our services at 10 a.m. Central every Shabbat or just about every Shabbat uh, with rare exception. And uh, we'd love to have you join us. You can catch it live at outofashesministries.org. We also simulcast to Facebook and YouTube. 
And then um, the teaching part portion is usually edited out and uh, put as a part of our podcast. And uh, so you can find that on our website or at iTunes or the Google Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast. And um, so, yeah, check us out and uh, join us there. If you have a congregation, maybe that meets at a different time and you just want to pop in and say hello and see what's happening, please feel free to do that. Uh, our online audience is super uh, audience. I hate that term audience, but our online uh, family congregation is super important to us, and we appreciate all of you guys that are active in the Facebook chat and that we talk to throughout the week, those of you guys that have visited, and uh, just awesome. We, we are super, super thankful. So uh, before we get into this week's episode and uh, talk a little bit about uh, Carbonot uh, a little bit more, following on from the last couple of weeks, let's go to the Father and ask Him to bless our uh, precious time together. Father of heaven, Avinu, Shabbat Shemayim, we are incredibly grateful with all of the chaos and stuff going on around us that you walk with us, that you are Emmanuel, our peace in the midst of the storm. We thank you for this time together and ask that you bless it through Yeshua, our Messiah. Guys, so today we are following on uh, in the book of Vaikra, and uh, this week's uh, Parsha is Shmini, and um, I really love this Parsha. As <laughs> this, I'm telling you, this first several chapters of Vaikra, his first uh, several portions, Parshiot of Vaikra, are just so just just chocked, so incredibly full of stuff, and uh, I, I just I don't have time to talk about it all. Um, and if you've heard or followed us for any amount of time, especially around the season of Sukkot, we talk a lot about Shmini and uh, the eighth day uh, because we have uh, Shmini Atzeret uh, at the end of Sukkot. And it's kind of a paradox. It's kind of a weird thing um, because we have seven days and we, we think about seven days, seven year cycles. Right. And um, then you have all of a sudden this thing about the eighth day and what is the eighth day. And uh, so I, I just I love I am absolutely in love with the biblical concept of the eighth day. Uh, I think it is prophetic in the truest sense of the word. And I believe that um, th that we could do I mean, we could just talk about it for a long, long time and not and, and still not really, you know, get it. Um, so the. The, you know, the seven day cycle versus the eighth day is a, a really important thing to me um, insofar as, you know, we think about Shabbat. We, we look forward all week to Shabbat. Uh, we cease and we rest and we, we enjoy kingdom. We enjoy, uh, you know, the shalom, the wholeness, the completeness of the day. And we look forward to the hope that that will be, you know, that will be every day. And then we go back to day one again, and we kind of start all over again on Sunday, right? And then we, we do the thing all over again, and we work our way back to Shabbat. But this eighth day, for me, even way back in the, in the Torah, it speaks of this, this continuation. Uh, I believe that the seventh day of creation was followed by an eighth day 
Uh, it, that's not said anywhere that I know of. It may be in some rabbinic writings. I don't know. But in my mind, that the Gani Don, where, where Hashem walked with Adam and Chava, that is eighth day. Uh, until the fall, and and then we start the cycle. So anyway, uh, this Parsha is packed really full of stuff um, that we won't really get to today. I just wanted to mention it. Uh, I did want to talk about the carbonate, though, again. Uh, We've talked about this the last couple of weeks, uh, being we're in Vayikra and the call, and uh, so we talked about the the call, the Vayikra, and so I want to talk about the carbonate a little bit. Uh, we finished off a couple of weeks ago with the five carbonate that we find in the first five chapters of the book of Vayikra, right? So there's some interesting things to note about. Uh, well, there's a lot of interesting things to note about the carbonate. First off, and I, I've said this the other day, I just want to say this again because I think that repetition is our friend whenever we're trying to wrap our heads around new concepts. When we're trying to learn new concepts, I think repetition is a very good thing for us. Um, and so I, I tend to repeat things over and over, you know, new concepts over and over. And that's not because I, I don't have anything else to say. It's, it's because I really believe that uh, my dad always said, you know, we were, he was teaching me how to build or teaching me how to do, you know, whatever. He would always say repetition, repetition, repetition. You know, you do it and do it and do it and become second nature. And it's the same way in our thought patterns that if we hear and we think about stuff and we hear and we think and we hear and we think repetitiously, then it starts to become a part of who we are. That can be positive or negative, of course. So uh, I hope you, you take this as positive. I believe it's a positive thing. But um, here at OAM, we have um, – I'm not going to – I don't want this to come across like some, I'm some kind of like dictatorial, you know, pastor kind of thing. That's, that's not what it is. Kind of said tongue-in-cheek. But um, I've pretty much outlawed the word sacrifice. <laughs> and and um, not, not that sacrifice is not a biblical thing, not that it's not a, you know, a, a legitimate word and a legitimate thing. But I have come to the place when I, as I study the carbonate and the offerings and things, the sacrifices, um, that I've really come to not like the word sacrifice in connection with what we call sacrifices in Scripture. And this is going to make sense in a little bit, so just stay with me. So when we talk about you know, the people bringing things to the tabernacle, animals and the shedding of blood and the burning on the altar and, you know, all the different things. Um, we call those sacrifices. Now, I think I might have said this a couple of weeks ago. Um, to me, when I think about sacrifice and I, I realize, listen, I'll just be completely open. I realize this is a lot of church baggage. OK, so maybe somebody out there has the same baggage as I do, maybe. And so you can kind of relate to this is my hope. But we have, when I hear sacrifice, what I hear, uh, you know, this is a conversational tool, a conversational thing, right? So somebody will explain something, and then the other person will say, what I heard you say was, and they'll repeat it back to see if what, if what they heard was what the person said. Because a lot of times what people say to us is not what, we don't hear what they said, we hear what they said through our filters and that can distort and change the meaning of what they intended. So th- this, when I hear sacrifice, what I hear, and again, I know this is a lot of, this is a baggage lens I'm speaking through, right? But when I hear that, what I hear is, if I'm an ancient Israelite, then what I have to do is I have to either raise up an animal from birth, and when it's the appropriate age, I can bring it, 
as a sacrifice, this animal that I've loved and cared for, I've made sure that it doesn't have a blemish. I've made sure that I've taken really, do you know how hard it is to raise an animal, to raise livestock and for them not to get a blemish? Um, we have sheep, cattle, horses, donkeys, and chickens. Uh, well, we're out of chickens right now, but we'll be getting some more. But in order to, to raise an animal from birth uh, to where it doesn't get a blemish, is a, it's a painstaking task. It takes a lot of attention. It takes, a, uh, it takes intention uh, and a lot of effort and, and care to make sure that that doesn't happen. So when I hear the word sacrifice, what I, what I think and what I hear is I want God to, you know, receive my, my thanksgiving. I want him to receive, you know, my gift. I want him to be pleased with me. I want him to find favor with me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want him to forgive my sin, whatever. And so if, when I bring a sacrifice, what I hear is God is up on his throne looking at what I bring, what I've cared for, what I've nurtured, what I've taken special care for, or if I've bought it, right? I've bought a sacrifice from someone else and paid a, you know, a good bit of money for it. And I, either way, it's, it's a, a great risk to me. And I am going to take that thing and I'm going to give it and I'm going to, I'm going to hurt for it. I'm going to take the best. Like I can't just take, I can't just take any animal. Like I can't take the lame animal that I don't care, you know, that I, I, I that has been sickly all its life and I've never really was sure if it would make it or whatever. Or I can't take the little measly looking one, you know, over there that's really not good for much. I can't take those. I'm going to take the one that costs me the most, whether financially or time and care, emotional attachment, all those things. And I'm going to present it before Hashem. And the idea that I understand a sacrifice, and again, this is probably twisted, but this is me, um, is that I am going to present it to Hashem, and and I hope that when God looks on it, He's pleased with it. Um, but but the main part of of sacrifice that gets me is that I have to hurt enough sufficiently for God to be satisfied. And that, again, I know it's toxic and it's probably twisted. That's my idea of sacrifice is that I have to hurt enough. And when I have sacrificed, i.e. hurt sufficiently, then God will look on me with favor. And then he will, in a a retributive way, he will grant my wish or my answer, my prayer or accept my gift or bless whatever or forgive or whatever we think. So, so his response to me, uh, as an ancient Israelite, this is how I picture it, is only in connection to how much I've hurt over that thing. Now, let's move ahead to New Testament and kind of Christianity and where we are today, because we don't bring animals, right? Um, but we have verses like, you know, uh, live your life as a living sacrifice, right? We should be a living sacrifice. Well, for for me again, what I hear, you know, I want to have this conversation with the with the author and say, okay, what I hear you saying is that um, I have to do things like give till it hurts. I have to do things like love till it hurts. I have to I have to be the one that's always miserable and hurting um, in order for that to be pleasing to God. I'll say it again, like ad nauseum. I know it's twisted. It's toxic. But some of you out there have grown up under the teaching that I've grown up under. It's our similar teaching to this. 
And I really, I'm finding later in life that it's not really, I thought it was, it was my Baptist upbringing. But then I got into Pentecostal circles and I found out, no, they kind of believe the same thing too. And um, it's not really based on a denomination. It's it's certain either areas of the country or just parts of, of uh, Christianity and where people came from or whatever. But it's this idea that, that not that God is pleased in our pain, but that God is pleased in our pain. And so to live our lives as a, to be as a living sacrifice basically means I'm always on the downside. I'm always on the underneath side. And, um, and, and while that may be, uh, I think that is very much a foundational part of a lot of denominational ministry and a lot of, uh, denominational theology, um, and people learn to cope with that and learn to deal with that. I'm not one of those people. I could not continue to live under that, that ideal, that set of ethics. And, and when I really started to study the offerings is when this really started to, to come full circle. And when I really thought like, man, I can't, I'm not doing this anymore. This is dumb. Um, and again, part of it is, you know, teaching and upbringing, uh, part of it is just wiring, right? I talk about how I'm wired a lot, and some of you will relate. I talk about this a lot on Shabbat. Um, I can only see the world really through the through the way I see it. And for instance, I'm a massive overthinker, analytical overthinking. You know, to to where I'm up all hours of the night just thinking about stuff that doesn't matter, just because that's that's how I'm wired. Um, I also tend to think very very deeply. Uh, about things to the point where it's stifling a lot of times where I'll think instead of acting, right? I'm trying to figure it out, trying to make sure all my ducks in a row, trying to make sure all the instances are accounted for and the the what ifs and the might happens are taken care of and there's plan B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, uh, and, and it just causes me to be stagnant and stifled. Thank, thank God, Baruch Hashem, that I have my wife, who is not an overthinker as much as I am, uh, really not, and she is more of a doer. Let's just do it, and we'll figure it out along the way. And so Hashem blessed me with a, a, a great balance um, when he gave me my wife. So um, so that's how I see the world. Now, I know that there are people who don't ever think, you know, like sometimes I lay awake at night and think about every conversation I had during the day. And I think like, well, did I say that the way I meant to? Did they take this wrong? Did I say it in a way that made it, you know, like, could I said something better? Why did I make that dumb joke? Like, you know, do they think now I'm a total, you know, idiot, whatever, you know, all these things. And I just mull over all these things on Shabbat. I think about like, how was the music? You know, I sang that note off. I missed those words. My guitar was out of tune and everybody heard it. You know, this and that, what I said during the message was this and blah, blah, blah. And I just think about this stuff over and over and over and over and over to, you know, I just, I beat it to death. And, um, and, and on the, conversely, I know that there are people that live their lives very happy, happily and very peacefully, probably more than me, that never, ever consider a conversation after they've had it. They just have conversations. They move on with their day, you know, and everything's great. Um, some of the, the positives to the way that those of you who think like I do or, or who are like I am, um, the positives that we tend to be more sensitive, maybe sometimes oversensitive. And those, I'm not going to say non-thinkers, but those less analytical types in the way that we are, um, they just don't stress over that stuff, right? They just are who they are. And if you like them, great. And if you don't, well, too bad, you know, move on to the next person. Not, not a big deal. Um, not like they're mean. You know what I mean? Um, but they just don't consider. It doesn't bog them down. Uh, on, the, on the converse side, uh, sometimes those people can seem a little cold and a little impersonal. Um, 
and so anyway, this a lot of this comes through not only my background, but my just the way I am, the way my brain works, right? And so I think it's 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 given some of us a, a unique perspective on the carbonate on the offerings. So if if that's kind of the way I see the quote unquote sacrifices and the sacrificial system, um, then I really don't like God and the way He designed this thing very much. It's very hard for me. Um, for a God who, who the Bible claims to be loving and compassionate and gracious and warm and full of hope and, and, you know, the source of life and light to then turn around and tell his people, well, you're, you know, I'll be, I'll be pleased with you, but you're going to have to hurt a certain amount first. That just really, and I was taught that kind of, that toxic theology that just really, it's hard for me. And, uh, and, and I just, I've come to the point where I don't think that's the case. I don't, I think we've, I've, I've misread or misunderstood um, the story and the message, and even carrying that over into the Brit Shah the, to the, the the apostolic writings, I just don't think that it's that's what's intended. So um, we, so I try to get away from that idea of sacrifice, not because it's a bad word, but because of, because of some of the connotations and some of the baggage that so many people have with that idea. That we may learn, we may be learning about the Corbinot, we may be studying the temple, we may be studying the offerings and all, but we still kind of have in the back of our minds this idea of, of, um, of sacrificial, uh, you know, pain and stuff and, and, and doing without and those kinds of things as we, as we come to these ideas of these concepts. So just at the very top, the very beginning, um, the word Corban, which the, the, the word is not really sacrifice. In Hebrew, the word is korban, which comes from the root uh, uh, karav, which means to, or karav is a related word, um, which means to draw near, right? So just just kind of doing it, when I did a deep dive on that several years ago, I mean, just that was absolutely mind-blowing to me, that in my in my background and with my religious baggage, the idea that, well, the Israelites can only come to God through sacrifices, Right. And there it's it put for me it, in my mind, it put a, a, a chasm between God and the believers that there wasn't an intimacy there. And that was part of what our message was. Right. That there was no intimacy with Hashem in, in the Old Testament. And I'm using my fingers for air quotes. You can't see it, but <laughs> it's, it, they're there. Um, it, there was a there was no intimacy there. But now that we have Yeshua, we have intimacy through Yeshua through his sacrifice. And, and it was, it's used as a way to juxtapose, like to make Yeshua better, we have to put down the way that it used to be. And, um, and that, that really was a big problem for me because that brings up a whole other host of issues. So this idea of Korban, the Korban. So every one of the, the, the offerings that are talked about in the, in Parsha Vayikra, the first five chapters of Vayikra, and then kind of reiterated again in uh, in Sav in last week's Parsha, uh, and then a couple are talked about in this week's Parsha with the with Shmini and with the inauguration of the Tabernacle. Um, we we have to start thinking about them. Or I think it's helpful to start thinking about them as korban, how to draw near. Right, the way to draw near is through offering, is through what we offer to Hashem, is how we draw near to Him. Um, and it, the, the case is not to appease God by our suffering and by our giving of our prized possessions. I mean, in the, you know, in, in some of the circles I've been in, 
and some of you will relate to this. Um, this thing, you know, it was almost like, well, if you have a nice car, then that's an area that God can't bless you. Like you need to drive an old beater and then God will be pleased. You know, at least your heart will be right and, you know, you'll be hum- humbled and blah, blah, blah. You, you know, to wear really nice clothes is really a prideful thing. You ought to dress modestly, you know, or, or poorly or, or homely, whatever. And just some of these things, you know, t- I mean, to have a really nice watch, like you shouldn't indulge in stuff like that. You ought to be humble and, and, and it's just a way to 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 beat down for for me. It, it just felt like it was always this this beat down kind of thing. So um, to understand that that what we offer to Hashem is and and the offerings that were done in the the time of the wilderness and in the the temples is it's all under the umbrella of korban to draw near, right? To draw near to Hashem. Now this has really big implications in the Gospels when Yeshua is having this discussion about korban and and things uh, with uh, the religious leaders. And uh, so this idea of drawing near, that's what I, the big point I want to get out of segment one. The korban are, in, are, are an effort to draw near. As we get into the next uh, episode, we're going to talk specifically about the khatat. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bears Radio. So uh, we are discussing this idea of korban and drawing near, right? So if, if, you, if you're struggling with this idea of the sacrificial system still and how it relates to Yeshua and w- how do we handle it as uh, apostolic believers, New Testament believers, uh, all those things, hopefully that helps to, to kind of soothe and kind of, you know, uh, makes sense of this idea that Hashem was not instituting a system when he instituted the offerings. It was not a system of you have to hurt so I can be appeased. That is not what the sacrificial system is about. Not at all, period, full stop, no. What it was was a system and a way to draw near. Now, why was this needed to draw near? Well, because there's this whole category uh, of thing called a ritual purity or impurity, right? Tamei and Tahor. Um, and so this, this thing uh, that we don't really understand and we take for granted is that we've talked about this in the last few weeks, that the building of the tabernacle, right? This is God's house. This is God's house is not every church on every corner. There's one house that's God's and it's the temple in Jerusalem, Right. When they come out of Egypt, it's the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then it's Shiloh and, you know, from there on. And so the, this place, this tent, is the place where the presence of God, Shekinah, the divine presence, rests and lives. He, he said, build me a tabernacle that I may dwell among you, right, they are in you. And so there's, there's, a, there's a, the, the holy, uh, perfect omniscient, omnipresent, uh, you know, omnipotent, all those omni words we use, he lives in the house, right? So when does he move into the house? 
Well, in this week's Parsha, we find the inauguration, seven-day inauguration, right? He moves into the house after there's been seven days of inauguration. Think creation, Solomon's temple, all of these things, seven days, seven days. Okay, this is all temple language and a temple picture. He moves in once it's been inaugurated. Now, what does it take to inaugurate the tabernacle? Well, it takes all these offerings and all these blessings and these prayers and songs and all these things uh, before the priests can start to serve and officiate in the tabernacle. So I have to take all this stuff down to a way that I can understand it. And I don't think God's mad at me for that. I think this is just the way that that uh, that I have to do it. And so I think he's cool with that. I think he teaches us through the way we understand or we can, you know, we have the ability to comprehend. I don't believe everything. I don't believe actually most things in Scripture are a mystery, right? Everything we didn't understand before was a mystery, and we'll find out in, you know, Beulah land. Uh, but no, I think that God gave us brains and reasoning and creativity and imagination to be able to understand his story and what his book is trying to tell us. So my mom, uh, the matriarch of our family, the the woman of the house, right? My dad, the man of the house, uh, dad had his chair. He had his stations. He had the way things he wanted done a certain way. Mom and dad had, you know, when I was growing up, you had a way you had to keep your room. You had a way you had to put your shoes at the door. You had a way you had to pick up your clothes, a way you had to clean your bathroom, uh, you know, a way you had to help this and that, chores and whatever, in order to keep the house uh, up to the standard of the ones who lived there, right? The ones who paid for it and, you know, built it and, you know, kept it running. As, a, as their child, uh, you have to work to keep it up to their standard because of who lives there, right? So... Uh, in the same way, Hashem's house um, has to be kept up to the standard of cleanliness and order that he, as the king of the universe, requires because he lives there. So we talk about the inauguration of the tabernacle. Before that seventh day where the glory of God comes and consumes the offerings and fills the, the Ohel Moed with, you know, with the smoke of his presence, before that, um, do we have a tabernacle? Do we have a sacred space? No. We have a tent out in the middle of the wilderness. That's all we have is a structure. When he moves in, it becomes his residence. It becomes Habai, the house, right? And so because he lives, there's a certain standard that has to be there. Now, we talk about the five uh, carbonate in the beginning of Vayikra, in Parsha Vayikra. You have the Ola which is the complete burnt offering. You bring an animal, it's completely burnt in the offering. Now, that's an ascending offering, olah, so where we get aliyah from and, and all these words, family of words. And so that is a complete uh, uh, surrender, thanksgiving, a giving over, and just a complete offering to God, a complete way of drawing near. Um, next, we have the uh, mincha offering which is a grain offering, right, which is the bread and the wine and those things. Uh, thirdly, we have the shlamim offering. I think I have these in the right order. The shlamim offering, which is a uh, peace or fellowship, uh, uh, peace offering. Um, and so what I want you to understand about these offerings, these karbanot, is that, again, they are not, at some points in time, they were probably thought of as retributive. In other words, well, um, if I want peace, and my, my life is chaos and I want peace, I need to bring a peace offering and then God will grant me peace. 
right? That's the way that sometimes we think as a transactional retributive kind of thing. Um, but I don't believe that's the, that's the intention behind it. I believe that the intention behind it is Hashem, I'm filled with Hashem's peace. He has granted me peace. So I will go and make an offering and I will draw near and I will make an offering as a way to show what he already has done, right? The Olah, God rescued me as a, as a part of this people, as, as an ancient Israelite. God rescued me as a part of these people. He made me a covenant member. And, and now all of my life is about him and his mission and his covenant um, to, you know, to take care of the world and to restore creation. So I give this Olah as a sign of that. So we tend to think that the offering comes first, then God does something. However, through studying and really thinking about this a, a lot, I, I think it's actually the opposite. The offering is a result of what God has already done. It's not a way to twist God's arm. It's not a way to force God or manipulate God into doing what we want, granting our wish or quote unquote answering our prayer. It's a way to show what already has been done. So the Ola, the Mincha, and the Shlamim. Uh, I have been able to fellowship with Hashem. I've been able to fellowship with his representatives, the priests. And so we bring this offering as a sign of our fellowship, right? The Mincha. And so then we get to the Chatat, which is in most translations called the sin offering. And uh, if you are interested in the book of Vayikra at all, I think I mentioned this, uh, Jacob Milgram has a fantastic, it's, it's, it's the one that I recommend the most. There's, to me, there's no other better commentary on Leviticus than Jacob Milgram. Um, uh, he has one by, I think, uh, Harvard Press or Yale. Uh, that's like several hundred dollars, but then he has a covenantal community one or something like that that's like $30, $40. Uh, get it. Get it. I don't care if you could care less about Vaikra, um, and you don't really want to study it. Get the commentary. Spend $40. Skip three McDonald's meals or whatever or, or you know, four lattes this week. And buy the, the commentary because when the parshiot come around, instead of not reading them because you don't, can't be bothered and you don't understand Leviticus, it gives you a way to engage and to understand. And, and he's absolutely brilliant and helps to make sense of all of this. So uh, Milgram um, talks about this, uh, this sin offering as a purification offering. Now, why is that important? That's, that's a huge... Uh, clarification in the understanding of this word. So we, I think the, the, we need to kind of readjust our biblical understanding or our understanding to a biblical uh, perspective of sin, right? So as a, as a good Bible-believing Christian, and, and I'm saying that with all genuineness, we tend, to, um, we tend to put more of an emphasis on our on our sin before God. Let me just say this as a disclaimer before we get into this. All of our trespass, all of our failings and our falterings are sin before God. All of them are, right? ultimately, right? But we, we emphasize our sin before God because we were told that sin, we're all born with sin, we are sinful, there's nothing we can do about it, and that's what keeps us from keeps us away from God. The only thing that allows us to reconnect to God is Yeshua. 
somehow he atones for God's anger and hurt and resentment over our sin or whatever the, the theology is, right? But this idea of sin as, as primarily something between us and God, it is ultimately. However, we have numerous uh, scriptures, Tanakh and apostolic scriptures, that talk about sin really being a matter between people. That ultimately, if I hurt you, if I damage something of yours, if I take your life, if I sin against you, I'm ultimately sinning against God because you're made in his image, et cetera, et cetera, all that, right? But we, we, have, we have overlooked that part and just gone, well, it's a sin before God. I'll confess it to God and everything's kosher, right? When really we should back up and refocus a little bit on the idea of trespass being between two people or between groups of people, that that is really the issue. And the scriptures I'm thinking of are things like, um, how can you uh, love God whom you've not seen if you can't love your neighbor who you have seen, right? So that seems to put, that seems to put the relationship with people pretty high up there. Um, Yeshua himself, right, said, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And, that's huge, right? That's that puts that puts our human to human relationship actually before um, the relate the relationship with God in in matter matter of priority. Um, stories like you know if you if you're at the altar giving a, a an offering a korban, and you re, you remember that someone has something against you. So it's not just if you don't forgive, you won't be forgive forgiven. But if you don't receive forgiveness or do your best to receive forgiveness by trying to make things right, then you won't, for, you won't get forgiven. He says, leave it and go make it right. And then come and offer your offering, which again, to me, reinforces this idea that the offerings are an expression of what has already been done. They're not given in order to make something happen. Okay. They're not a divine manipulation. So the, these are some of the passages I'm thinking about when I think about sin being maybe primarily as far as it concerns us being between each other. And so this is why the definition of the chatat offering being a sin offering or a purification offering and why that verbiage to me matters. How is that? Well, so take this for instance. Um, whether you're a mom or a dad or maybe you don't have kids but you have family that have, has kids or, or whatever – uh, or you, maybe at work, right? Let's just use use that as well. Think about it at work. Uh, let's say you're a parent, right? The house is great. It's clean. It's nice. Everything's in order. You're trying to relax after work or whatever. You've been, you know, you've been there, and your kids have been outside playing. Everything's been great. They've been playing ball. They've been playing in the woods. They've been riding their bikes, playing with friends, whatever. And then brother and sister come in, and they're just at each other's throats, right? Just fighting, fighting, fighting. You know, you know, calling each other names and accusing each other of stuff and, you know, moaning and groaning and whining and wanting a tattletale and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter how clean your house is physically, how in order everything is, everything's dusted, everything's put in its place. It doesn't matter that all the clothes are washed and folded and put up. It doesn't matter that all the dishes are clean and put up. It doesn't matter any of those things. It brings a chaos into the house, Right. It brings a tension and, a, and chaos. That's the word. It brings chaos. Now, have your children sinned against you, or have they trespassed your values and your ethics? Well, yes. 
but does it matter that they come and make up to you and they're still at odds? No. Don't make up to me. Make up with each other, and, and, and that'll make me happy. If you guys make up with each other, you don't have to – You don't have uh, my kids, when they're fighting, they don't have to apologize to me for fighting with each other. And maybe that's just my style of parenting or the way I think about it. But I care more that they make amends. And if I see they, them make amends, I have no, I hold no, no, no ought against them. They don't have to ask me forgiveness for anything, right? So remember, God's house is holy. His space, sacred space is holy. It's a place of order. When we as brothers and sisters, are we as humans, period, not just people in covenant, period, if you sin as a Christian against a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist, or I don't care, human beings, because we're all God's children, we're all his creation, we're all his image, as hard as that is to get our head around. When we sin, when I sin against a fellow human, and then I try to approach God, I am bringing in chaos to, that, to, to his sacred space. I am introducing chaos because I have done something to upset the balance. I'm not repairing the world. I'm destroying the world. When I sin against someone else, I am destroying the world. I'm destroying the kingly order that Hashem set up and that he called me to try to repair as his disciple through, through Messiah, right? And so as his image bearer, my goal, my job is to kun olam. That's my job. When I sin against someone else, when I trespass against a fellow human, I am introducing chaos when I should be introducing order and restoration and redemption and love and hope and forgiveness. And then I approach God with that. Now, there is a, there is a, and and I didn't cover this, but there is this idea of atonement or purification. Uh, Kapoor is to, to wipe literally when blood is on the altar, like for Yom Kippur, um, literally the blood wipes away any of the uh, impurities that are on the altar. Okay, And that generally is a physical thing, but or it is a physical thing. But it also means that whenever I come to bring a, an offering, a chatat, it's because I have an unintentional sin. First, that's really important. By the way, we didn't even talk about intentional and unintentional, which is hugely massive, right? Um, that That's even a thing. But it's an unintentional sin. I didn't mean to do something, but it happened. I did it. I wasn't, it wasn't premeditated. And I bring an offering. Then what, what, what Hashem is looking for is for me to right that wrong first and then to bring that offering. When I don't write that wrong and I bring that offering, I'm introducing chaos into sacred space. What the offering is there to do is as a sign that I have made that right and that the temple, the sacred space then can be pure again, can be free from the part of chaos that I brought into it. So on Yom Kippur, it's like the culminating day when the whole house is cleaned, right? We Surely there's times that we've come in, We've come into the, to the tabernacle as ancient Israelites, and we've brought stuff, whether physical, we were sick and we didn't know it, uh, you know, we brought snot into the place, uh, you know, whatever, and, or we, you know, we had a sore we brought in, or, you know, a woman has a baby, 
blah, 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 whatever. And there's a physical dirtying of the house, but there's also along the way spiritual dirtying of the house, emotional, mental dirtying of the house, introducing that spiritual, emotional, and mental chaos. And on Yom Kippur is the day where, where dad says, okay, we're, we're, doing a cle- we're cleaning the house, right? And so the, the, the hatat, the sin offering, the purification offering, it's not it, – what I want you to understand is that it's not I sinned. So I have to bring an offering, and when the blood is wiped on the altar, then God forgives my sin personally. That's not the picture. The picture is I sinned against another person. I am coming. I've asked, asked for forgiveness. We've made amends. I've, we've done, I've restored whatever needed to be restored. And then I bring an offering as a sign of that and so that the, the house can be cleansed from any chaos that I might have introduced. This is brother and sister come in and they're fighting and they make up. They don't have to ask me for forgiveness, but it would be nice if they they sat down and colored together or played a deck of cards together or did something together in fellowship, right, in, in unity. And that's what the chatat is, this purification offering. The idea is not that I offer this offering and I get forgiveness for my sin. So this so so two things to wrap up here. So then we always get the question every time we talk about the offerings. The main question we get is, well, what what kind of sacrifice was Yeshua? And my answer is usually uh, uh, A B C D E is usually F, all of the above, right? Because moments of his life um, enacted or manifested all of the different characteristics of the different types of offerings. Some points in his life, he's displaying the, the, the ethic of the asham, being completely surrendered, or the, the ola. In other parts, he's the mincha, where it's fellowship. In other parts, it's the, uh, it's the shlamim, with the peace, right, and the storm, and all these things. All these things he, he embodies and he shows as a zadik, as a righteous one. I don't think of Yeshua's death as an, a sacrifice. Now, that may offend some people. I'm sorry ahead of time. For me, Yeshua is, is the Korban. He is the one that drew me near and continues to, to this very day. Without his offering of his life, not only his death, but his life and what he taught and his invitation for me to join, I, would, I don't know that I would have ever been drawn to Hashem. So he is the one that draws me close as a Korban, Right? And instead of being someone God had to kill in order to please God's wrath over sin, which is the more I study the actual temple service and how it was done, that is more and more foreign to me. I don't understand how we ever believe that and how we still teach it. But him laying down his life to draw me near, is, is the, is, that's the job of a, a korban, of an offering. Secondly, when we talk about living our lives, right? Give yourselves as a living sacrifice. What about instead, if we think about that verse as giving our lives as a living offering, as a living korban? Now, again, I'll ask, what does a korban do? A korban draws near. That's the mechanism for drawing near. To live my life as a living sacrifice, again, for me, what I hear is, I have to constantly be hurting. I have to be on the underside of life. 
I have to be the one self-sacrificing, hurting, giving up all that. And not that those things are bad. We ought to put people first over us. We ought to consider, you know, other things before our own desire. All those things are true. However, the idea is that the more I hurt, the more God is pleased. That's toxic. That is toxic. God doesn't delight in our pain and it doesn't manipulate him into wanting to bless us more. But to live my, give my life as a living offering means that I am constantly looking for ways to draw people and to draw creation back to God. I become that, that disciple, that image of Messiah, that carrying on of the message and the gospel. The good news is that creation can be restored and people can be drawn near to God. And I somehow by God's divine wisdom have been chosen to be a part of that. And so living my life as a living offering, I have the responsibility to stay close to the, to Messiah and to Hashem. But I also now my function and my job, my goal is to draw people as a living offering to Hashem. So that's a quick take, a flyover view, my flyover view on the Corbinote. I hope that you have found this uh, helpful. I hope that it has maybe challenged you in some ways and maybe that it has, uh, you know, made you think of some things a little bit differently, thought about Yeshua differently, maybe thought about yourself differently, definitely thought thinking about Vaikra and the, the, the call to come near differently. And as we begin to approach these things, I think it changes the whole atmosphere of who we are, who we serve, what our, what we're called to do, what our job is. And it makes it easier to understand and to be in this place because it's hard enough dealing with life and people as it is just from from the go right from the get. If I then have to be supplanting myself all the time, even when I'm trying to do the right thing, that just makes it all the more miserable. That's not the point. That's not God's heart. He is the God of hope and love and light. And that's what he wants us to be. People who draw others and creation near to him. Thank you guys again for joining us for this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I pray you have a wonderful rest of the week. And until next time, shalom, shalom. Shalom.